Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Thank you very much um, for the introduction. Thanks to all of you for coming. I know you're really busy. I was just saying earlier on, at this table, I, I, it's been two years since I presented my research. I, I presented my G20 research two years ago, and I'm pleased to report back to all of you that um, our paper on looking at the, the role of the chair, and of course this was the role of Australia as the chair of the G20 in 2014, that was published late last year in the in the Journal of Australian International Affairs, Australian Journal of International Affairs, and then we published our second paper um, in the, the Journal of Global Society, which is an international relations journal out of the UK, and that's probably the end of that project, I think. Um, this particular pro this particular presentation was was I was invited to present to the Griffiths to clear back in March, and um, I had just received the contract from Cambridge University Press. It took them about three years to decide to publish our book. It's entitled How Negotiation Ends. The editor is is William Zartman, who is a professor emeritus uh, from John Hopkins University, who is just an absolute star in my field. Um, he came up with the concept of the herding stalemate, which if you know anything about the herding stalemate, um, what that means is it helps you understand when you should stick a mediator into a civil war. And he's probably saved millions of lives by developing that theoretical concept. Anyway, he's, he's a legend in my field. And he found the money from the United Nations Development Program to fly 15 of us to Montenegro to present our papers to each other. And that has become a book which will be published I don't know if Cambridge University Press is engaged in the capture and kill business, because I wonder, you would think I would have by now um, galley proofs, but I don't. I thought I'd have a book to show you, mm -hmm. but I don't. But anyway, uh, it gives us an opportunity. If you've got some brilliant critique of my work, I would be welcome to hear that today. And, um, and that I still have time to, to make changes. So anyway, I, I pitched this as, uh, as the focused on modeling the end game, but actually the title is, you can see on my first slide, Closure and Bilateral Negotiations, APEC Member Free Trade Agreements. And one of the things about this study is, so it's not focused on APEC, it's focused on the bilateral relationships between APEC members. I don't think there's ever been a paper that looks specifically at the bilateral relationship amongst a regional association. And so I had five cases. I had many, I have many cases, but I chose five that only involved APEC because at the moment I was invited to fly to Montenegro, I'd just been appointed as the director of the, the deputy director of the APEC Study Center, and I thought I needed an APEC paper. Mm -hmm. So I only chose my cases that involved APEC members. Um, in terms of the study overview, hey, Lynn, thanks for coming just into the study overview. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. I got a literature review that takes up a couple of pages in my paper. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. And then, of course, the research questions will follow. Uh, research setting, which is, of course, a, within the APEC group. I'll look at that briefly. And then I've got five free trade agreements and five slides, a slide for each free trade agreement. I'll walk you through that. Then we've got case analysis. And then, of course, modeling the end game. I do have a model that I have created from the analysis of those five cases. And then some concluding thoughts, which looks at, um, at future research opportunities. And I might say, this is, a, I think, a bit informal. If you've got a burning question at any time, just raise your hand and let's get the burning question out. But of course, we've got time to, um, to answer questions. I think I'm going to go for th about 40 minutes. 
and then we'll um, answer your questions at that point. So let's just get into my research question. And the first one involves my literature review, the relevance of multilateral negotiations um, to bilateral negotiations. Because the literature in this field is really multilateral. When we've, we have very few studies that have looked at just closure, just the end game, which is really quite interesting. Every study that studies, looks at negotiation will, will address closure. We'll talk about the outcome, but not specifically analyze it. So Zartman was brilliant in bringing us together to, to do this book, and I'm really grateful to him. So anyway, the literature is multilateral, and conveniently enough, it's primarily in trade. So there was, a, there was an article by um, Winham in 1987 that significantly addressed the question of the end game. And then probably the, the negotiation that's received more attention than any other negotiation was the the Gantt-Uruguay round, and uh, a fellow named Stewart uh, gathered together five volumes, and, or excuse me, four volumes, and volume four was just on the end game. And so those two, I, I draw on that, and out of those sources, well, we got things like coalitions, which aren't relevant to bilateral, but very relevant to more. Coalitions can bring about outcomes and the end game. Negotiation complexity is not only a challenge, but also an opportunity, we find out. Decision-making is primarily political, and then um, deadlines are so critical. And so, so that's the literature. And then my research questions involve how do bilateral trade negotiations end? What are the forces that cause agreement to emerge in a, at a particular moment in time? And what are the dynamics that bring about or interfere with closure? So five cases to address that question. But let's just look at my... Okay, I see. There we go. I don't know if you can see that very well, but on another slide you'll, you'll be able to see very well. I, I contacted in my role as deputy director of the APEX Study Center, I contacted the APEX Secretariat in Singapore and asked them for a list of all the bilaterals, and they didn't have that. I said, okay, that's fine. They don't gather that information. But they do have a page on their website that links to every single Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade or Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, every single member, that's 21 members. And, and so I was able to use that website to actually count myself. And these were counted in, in May 2015. And, um, and there were 48 free trade agreements that I identified in May 2000. Now, if you look at Australia, for example, you'll see that um, Japan is there. You'll see that Korea is there. But China is not there. So in May 2015, China had not been identified yet. Uh, excuse me. China had, it had been agreed to, but not yet uh, in force. And so I, um, I guess Cambridge University Press could have asked me to update my data, but they didn't. And so that's from 2015. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. I think I slipped, I, I slipped past my, um, my introduction to the APEC. So Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, 29-year-old uh, regional association that was initiated by Australia. Australia is very proud. It was um, um, a prime minister that spoke in uh, Korea and proposed this. And then the very first meeting was in 29 years ago in Canberra, is where that meeting was. So I'm interested now in bilateral negotiations on the sidelines of a regional association. So when, when summit leaders come together, when ministerials occur, there's all these side meetings. And so that's really what I'm looking at, honestly. So I have five cases out of 48 that I'm looking at. There's my 48, which I've talked about. And then here's something a bit more visual. 
This is, there they all are, 20, all 21 members, and you can see, it's interesting to see, Russia may have free trade agreements, but none with, um, in, the lower, in the lower part of that slide, none with APEC members. You can also see Taiwan, because of their political complications, have no agreements. You can see Papua New Guinea uh, to the left with no agreements, but everybody else has agreements. And then if you look just near each, uh, look at the density, you can see that Peru, the USA, Japan, Chile, uh, these seem to be the ones that are most active in this space, just based on the density near the, the name. So that's kind of interesting. But let me show you my convenience sample, which is right there. So I'm looking at five out of 48 negotiations. And so this is not a random sample. This is a convenience sample. This was data I had gathered long before uh, I was asked to do this particular study. And I'll, um, I'll walk you through those specifically. So in 2004, I got some uh, uh, funding. I just barely finished my PhD. I'd just gotten some funding from the university, $15,000 as a matter of fact, to study. And it was new for me. I didn't do, in my PhD, I didn't study trade negotiations. This was like green fields for me. And at the very same time, this is green fields for Australia because Australia had not done many free trade agreements until 2000. And they just started in 2000. The Singapore-Australia free trade agreement was our second free trade agreement after the 1983 Australia-New Zealand. So this, is, so this is a change, and this is significant, uh, that I'll talk about when we get to that tree, a very uh, significant change in, um, in policy for Australia. So I looked at, the, in my first study, I looked at three negotiations, Singapore-Australia, United States-Singapore, and Australia-United States. And I was interested at that time in linkage theory. How does Singapore-Australia influence U.S.-Singapore? How does U.S.-Singapore influence Singapore-Australia? These two negotiations were going on at the same time. Singapore was managing two negotiations at the same time, and they had an A team and a B team. And we were the B team, <laughs> as one would uh, be. And I interviewed, uh, at that point in time, 86, 86 interviews in, in Canberra, Singapore, uh, Washington, D.C., and Geneva. That was my first study. And then that went really well, and I did my second study, and I looked at Chile's negotiations with the United States. That, I did that research in in uh, 2006, two years later, I got a little bit of money from a consortium. Uh, and also, I did not include Chile's negotiations with Europe. But at the same time Chile was negotiating with the United States, Chile was negotiating with Europe. Europe is not part of APEC, and so I did not include them in this data analysis. Uh, so I, I was, And Chile didn't have an A team and a B team. Chile had one team, and they were negotiating with Europe at the same time they were negotiating with the United States. And they were exhausted. Uh, they were. But anyway, I interviewed 28 people in Santiago, Chile, and Washington, D.C. in 2006. And then much later, actually 2014, 2015, I was appointed as a professor at Kyung Hee University for a year. It was a, it was a, a great opportunity and, and rewarding financially and, pro and professionally. And I promised I would do some research involving Korea. And it happened that the Korea-Australia Free Trade Agreement um, occurred during that. I had concluded an agreement that took four years to knock out. For I'll explain about that later. So I interviewed 28 people in 2014, 2015 in, um, in Seoul, in St. John City, which is their new capital, which is uh, 300 kilometers south of a war, a war zone. Good reason for them to move uh, their capital, part of their capital. And, um, and then, of course, in Canberra. 
So that's my data and how I gathered my data. I go in, I, take, I interview people, ask questions, I take interview notes, I go home every night into my hotel room and type them up and do it. The, and, and so that's where my data is. Now, let's move to my data. I'm going to kind of walk you through how each one of the following five slides are structured in the same way. I talk about how the negotiation was initiated. If there was something unique about the process, I talk about that. I focus on the conclusion and, and then the, the conclusion in terms of how it happened and then what were the micro issues and the macro issues. The micro issues are the issues that you negotiate across the table and the macro issues are structural issues that exist outside of the negotiation that ha might have some impact on how closure occurs actually. So, of course, you've got, you've got to get to close on the, the micro issues to reach an agreement, but, the, but it's both the micro and the macro issues that can have effect. And then finally, down at the bottom, you'll see these, um, these dates. The first date on the left-hand side, November 2000, is the date that the negotiation was announced. The next number, February 2001, is the date that the first negotiation occurred, the first round I'll talk about a round in a moment, what that means. And then the, the next number, the third number to, close to the right, it, October 2002, is the date that the negotiations concluded. And then the last number at the top, February 2003, is the date that the treaty was signed. Now, after you sign a treaty, it has to go to Parliament or Congress for approval. That's a separate negotiation that I don't study. Uh, I'm not a political scientist. I'm, I focus on the, And you can study that from a negotiation perspective. But I just, from the date it was announced to the signing of the treaty is my, is my period that I'm looking at. So I'll have one of those for each one of the next five slides. So in terms of Singapore-Australia, it was announced at the APEC Leaders Summit in 2000 in Brunei. Um, uh, the, our Prime Minister and the Prime Minister from Singapore got together and said, let's do a free trade agreement. The uniqueness of this, as I mentioned earlier, it was our very first free trade agreement since New Zealand. And that's really interesting because the entire DFAT had a multilateral philosophy and there were some economists that strongly felt that the spaghetti bowl theory, if you know anything about the economics of trade, a uh, fellow at um, Columbia University, Bagwati, uh, who's, who famously promoted, and this was just heresy, this was insane, that John Howard was going to move us into the bilateral realm. And there was actually, I don't put it, but about, uh, about five or six months into um, the, um, the negotiation process, uh, there was a revolt. An interim defat wouldn't say this, but I can. Uh, there was a revolt, and the the government officials rejected John Howard's multilateral, bilateral initiative, and people were replaced, is what happened. They wouldn't say that, but that's actually what happened. The chief negotiator was relieved. Singapore, on the other side, didn't have any problem with this, but they changed their, they, in, in sort of a deity, a kind of, uh, this is diplomacy, they changed their, their chief negotiator, though they didn't have to do that, and then negotiations continued. And so that's kind of interesting. It, 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 but that didn't, have any, that didn't have any impact on the outcome. 
but it certainly did on the process. It slowed the process down. In terms of um, the conclusion, the conclusion occurred. The ministers were together. It was the ministers that met at a APEC ministerial in Mexico in October 2002, and they wrapped up the final issues, is what they did. And the final issues were financial services, legal services, investment, and rules of origin were the final issues. That were, that were wrapped up at the end game. And so you take the most difficult issues, the difficult that have political sensitivities, and you pass them up to the ministers, is what you do. And that's what happened. So that's my first case. We move on to the United States-Singapore, which was occurring at the very same time. And so you can imagine that the, the, um, the Singaporean, um, oh, I forget his name now, the Singaporean Prime Minister, um, he was kind of a busy fellow talking to... Um, Australia one day and um, the United States the next. As it turns out, um, the U.S. president, that was um, Bill Clinton, and the Singaporean prime minister, they went out for a game of golf in Brunei. They have enough energy that they can light up an entire golf, uh, uh, 18-hole golf course, uh, like 10 at night. And maybe the seventh hole they reached a, a deal to do. Now, this was the unique process. This is the first free trade agreement since NAFTA for the United States. And so that's like a lot had changed in seven years since NAFTA. Now, there was the U.S.-Jordan Treaty in 2001, but most people that are in the business would say that the U.S.-Jordan Treaty was a political treaty, not a, but it was called a free trade agreement. But it was really not. So this is really new territory for the United States as well, which is if you're looking at negotiation process, they didn't have positions on a lot of issues. They didn't know what their positions were on a lot of issues. So that impacted on the Singapore-U.S. Uh, free trade agreement. And also the, the Singapore, the Chile-United States uh, free trade agreement is current at the same time. See you later, Gloria. Thanks. So the conclusion stage occurred at an APEC ministerial in Mexico in October 2002. The ministers shifted from 30 issues down to six issues. And so they didn't close, the, the ministers didn't close the deal, but they narrowed it down to the six political issues that, that couldn't be addressed by the ministers. And then, and then a few months later, well, in January 2003, so three months later, it was sorted out by senior level uh, officials rather than ministers is the way the end game occurred. The micro issues, competition policy, financial services, investment, intellectual property, and textiles were the final issues uh, that, that were on the table, those six issues that were addressed. So that's the United States Singapore. So at the very same time that... Um, Oh, and then we've got the, and, and then the United States Australia comes after those other two negotiations. They initiated in March 2003 after a very long pre-negotiation process. So basically, now we're talking about George W. Bush and and John Howard, and they liked each other. They were kind of friendly terms. It would have never happened if they hadn't had friendly relationships, but they did because. Um, George W. Bush took a lot, of, a lot of political trouble for initiating a negotiation with Australia. They're really frightened of our, our power in the, agricultural mark, in the agricultural space. And so there was, so if you can imagine, George W. Bush passes the, the task down to the United States Trade Representative, the Chief of the Trade Representative Office, which is the Trade Minister for the U.S., and rather than passing it to the senior trade person in DFAT in Canberra, he passed it, John Howard passed the project to Australia's 
ambassador in Washington, D.C., because proximity matters. And they spent a long time dealing with a whole bunch of political issues in Washington, D.C. to get this thing going. And there was actually a letter written by, signed by 50, 50 United States senators and congressmen saying, don't you dare do a deal with, you, with Australia. Yeah. And, and George W. Bush went forward anyway. Now, he, he needed those people in the election that followed. And this is why I say this was, this was a deadline-driven process. These negotiations normally are completed in two to three years, normally. And this was completed in 11 months from the point it was started in March 2003 until it was, uh, until it was uh, agreed to in April 2004. 11, and the reason for that is because in November 2004, there was the re-election of George W. Bush. And George W. Bush was really concerned about those 50 senators and congressmen that had signed a letter saying, don't you dare do a deal with Australia. And he needed their support. And so this was deadline-driven in that they needed this deal done well before the election so, it could, so then it could go to Congress and get approved before it interfered with, with the election. So in a, and so in the end game, the micro, now we get a macro issue. In the end game, the micro issues, agricultural, media, and cultural content, investment, intellectual property, health, and the pharmaceutical investment scheme is, um, it were the issues. But then, then a micro issue appears, and it's really the whole negotiation was to avoid the linkage of linking the trade treaty to the U.S. election. That's what that was really about, honestly. And what that meant is so many issues that Australia wanted, like we didn't do very well with agriculture, though DFAT would disagree with me. Lots of other people would say, would say we didn't do very well with agriculture, and, um, and the U.S. didn't get the things they wanted. So like state investor dispute settlement, they didn't get that from us. Um, cultural content, they didn't get that. Messing around with the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, they didn't get those things. So they... So, Issues that were really serious got dropped off just to end the deal. And so that's an interesting macro issue that, that fits into my, uh, to my modeling. Moving on to Chile, and we move back in time briefly. At the same time um, um, that the United States is negotiating with Chile, the United States is negotiating with Singapore. The United States is big enough, they probably had plenty of teams. They were doing other negotiations as well. So these two were going on at the same time. Now, how did that happen? It's kind of interesting how the United States ended up negotiating with Singapore and with Chile at the same time. So the United States president, Singapore prime minister, go out and have a game of golf, and the next day uh, they announce a free trade agreement. And Chile immediately says, wait a minute, we've been in this line for a really long time, because right after NAFTA, there was called, it's cute, the Four Amigo talks, which there were three or four rounds right after NAFTA. They, they included Canada, the United States, Mexico, and Chile. And they had had three rounds. And then because Clinton had such problems with Congress, that didn't go any further. But they had established the legitimacy of that negotiation. And then the U.S. and Singapore announced they're going to do a, a trade treaty. And then Chile says, wait a minute, we've been in that line a long time. And so now suddenly the United States, in the final days, let's keep in mind this was in November, December uh, of 2000. And Bill Clinton is leaving in uh, January 2001. So why does Bill Clinton do this? 
why did he engage in this exercise? I think just to jerk the Congress around. He wanted, he wanted a democratic negotiated trade treaty uh, that he could, he could submit to the Congress, is what he wanted. But you know, you don't negotiate a trade treaty in three months. Uh, the USTR was just outraged that Clinton had done this. And Singapore said, and Chile said, I'll just give us the Jordan Treaty. Just give us the Jordan Treaty. We'll just change the name and it'll be fine. And the USTR said, that will cause us such trouble. So what happened is uh, George W. Bush inherited two negotiations. So the first thing that the President of the United States does is he, um, he is the uh, human resource manager for 3,000 jobs. So he's really busy hiring, getting people hired. That's why the U.S. is so powerful in terms of managing their bureaucracy. Australia doesn't have that. Singapore doesn't have that. That's what he does. So he's going through a list of all the things to be killed. Kill, kill, kill. Postpone, kill, kill, kill. Oh, oh, bilaterals. He wasn't a multilateralist. So philosophically, the U.S. Singapore and the U.S. Chile philosophically felt good. And so he said, yeah, we'll do these. We'll do these. He could have killed them, but he didn't. So in terms of the end game, that's a, uh, none of that has anything to do with the end game, but it's interesting to understand that. Micro issues, financial services, customs tax on autos. The, the, Chile had, it was like a $16,800 tax on every single, they call it a tax, it was a tariff, on every single car that's imported. The U.S. wanted that taken off. Think about that the U.S. isn't paying that tax, but the Europeans and the Japanese are. So that's, and then copper is 40% of Chile's uh, exports. It's a big money maker for them, 40%. And they wanted no tariffs on... The tariffs were like 2 or 3% in the U.S., but it's big money that was involved in that. And so those were the micro-issues, the last issues at the table uh, that were concluded around December 2002. And then in terms of the end game, the Singapore... Um, Briefly, what's really interesting, this is, I've written an entire paper just on this negotiation alone because there's some great stuff going on in terms of linkage dynamics. And what happened in, in the deal was done, in, finished in December 2002, and then in January 2003, Chile became a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council. And for a two-year period, at the very same time that the U.S., and I will use the word, wanted to invade Iraq, the U.S. wanted to invade Iraq, and they wanted the, the United Nations to pay for that. But, of course, that's too ambitious a goal, so we would just want them to sanction it. And you would get their sanction through the U.N. Security Council. That's, that's um, 15 votes sanctioning this, this plan of George W. Bush to go into Iraq. And so after you negotiate a treaty and, and before you sign it, it goes to the lawyers for what's called legal scrubbing, which is like clean, taking this business text and turning it into legal language so it can become a treaty. And so I talked to a fellow in, who, the, a guy actually, a fellow in, uh, in San Diego like, invited me out for dinner. He wouldn't say this in his office, but he told me this story over dinner. And I took notes immediately after dinner, and he told me that what had happened, that the U.S. had delayed the, pro the legal scrubbing process 
of uh, uh, to, to, to put pressure on them to vote for the UN Security Council vote. Now, I don't normally talk to the lawyers that write the treaty, but I made a point when I was in Washington, D.C. two months later to go to, um, to meet with one of the lawyers, and they were not as open, but I was able to get enough information. I was gently kind of probing this, and I got enough information to confirm that, yeah, in fact, it was delayed. And, they, and it was delayed because the UN Security Council vote. So did Chile vote for uh, the US invasion of Iraq? They voted against it. And I think they voted, and this is, uh, so this is like a macro issue at the end game. They voted against it because what would Peru think? What would Brazil think? What would Argentina think? This was the first treaty that the US had engaged in uh, except for Mexico. And all the other countries were talking about Chile was going to become the U.S.'s little puppet. That was the dialogue going on around that. And they wanted to show, and it was, I was told, it was a call, a decision made by the president of Chile. He instructed the, um, the uh, Chilean representative to the, to the United Nations to, to vote against it. And, and their reason, of course you have to have a reason, was we don't think diplomacy has, has been exhausted. We think we should exhaust diplomacy before we engage in military activity. So anyway, that's really interesting. And those linkage dynamics have some effect on my, my model. Uh, finally, my last one, my most recent one, it was initiated in March. Look how long that, that timetable is. March 2009. Just like the um, the U.S. Australia negotiation was um, was driven because of a deadline, this was driven through a deadlock, and it was a single issue. I'll talk about that issue in a moment. The negotiation was concluded on the sidelines of a WTO ministerial in Indonesia in December 2003, and um, the micro issues, the final issues with interest. Uh, Interstate dispute settlement, which I'll talk about, agricultural tariffs on beef, dairy and grains, and auto tariffs. These were the, the end game issues. These were the big political issues. Now, the macro issue, look, look at that. We started in, it was announced in March 2009. Negotiations began in May 2009. They reached the agreement, what is that, over four years later, in December 2013. It was a single issue. It was interstate dispute settlement. Australia refused to accept that, and Korea was not going to sign a treaty without it. And the reason for that is because of the linkage to the Korea-U.S. treaty. And the Korea-U.S. treaty, which I haven't included here, because uh, I haven't actually formally studied it, but the Korea-U.S. treaty, was, the Koreans were forced to adopt interstate dispute settlement. And what that is, is that is the right of a corporation to sue a government if they lose money. It's very controversial. It's a disease that the U.S. passes around to other countries. What role should a corporation have in public policy making? This can be, they can have, corporations may have legitimate grievances, but they can, it can also be abused. And so, of course, the U.S. doesn't represent their people at trade treaty negotiations. They represent their corporations. And so they're all for the interstate dispute settlement. So the, the Australians were against it. It was the only thing stopping uh, the treaty from being, uh, there was nothing else stopping the treaty from being approved. But interstate dispute settlement, and so for for a very for three years, this was the problem. What changed it? 
in September uh, 2013, in September, we had a change of government, and Labour was voted out, Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister at the time, and uh, Tony Abbott was voted in. And he announced that we will look at things like ISDS on a case-by-case basis, which is to say there's some room to maneuver. And so then when the minister went up to Seoul a month later, the trade minister, he said, yeah, we can be flexible on this issue. And we were flexible. We did. It is our very first treaty, a real treaty on, on ISDS. And we did carve out certain things that are untouchable. We said very clearly certain public policy areas cannot be addressed. You know, public health sorts of things, national security kinds of things, uh, these sorts of things. I'll be wrapping it up in a moment here. So, so a change in party. Now, I, I, when I, I change in negotiators, we went from a liberal, from a labor negotiator to a liberal negotiator, is what we did, and that then, that was what what brought agreement. So that's a macro issue. So, so now I'm moving into analysis here, and we've got okay, what role did did not just APEC, but other international organizations play. They serve as a venue where, where presidents and prime ministers meet at summits, where ministers meet. And so we've, and there's a list, I've already kind of mentioned it, where uh, APEC played a role in developing this. Uh, in its, in, they were announced, the Singapore-Australia, the US-Singapore, was announced at an APEC leaders' meeting in Brunei. And then sometimes ministers, um, th- there's a chain of events, so the Chile-U.S. negotiations were created because of what happened at a ministerial, an APEC ministerial. And then sometimes ministers come together, they don't wrap up the negotiation, but they move them forward in a significant way, which we see with the U.S.-Singapore negotiations in the APEC ministerial in Mexico in 2002. And then... um, it serves as a venue to conclude the negotiations. The trade ministers in, in the Singapore-Australia free trade agreement was actually concluded at the APEC ministerial in Mexico. And then finally, the, the WTO, the, um, the Korea-Australia uh, negotiations were wrapped up at a WTO ministerial in Bali. And then you don't know the free trade agreement of the Americas, which is dead. It will never come back to life. It was a, a George W. Bush uh, initiative of about 30 nations in North and South America. Brazil and the U.S. just didn't get on. But anyway, there was a ministerial in Miami, and um, and that is where the uh, the Chile U.S. free trade agreement was signed, not at the White House in a hotel room because Chile had voted against the U.S. initiative to to invade Iraq. So we will punish you by signing your treaty in a hotel room rather than... When Singapore and the U.S. signed their free trade agreement, it was at the White House. Bright lights, big city, all the media was there. Okay, so that's how, like, these... How the APEC plays a role in these negotiations. They serve as a venue... And then in terms of looking at the macro issues, party stability and instability, and we look at the, uh, particularly the Korea-Australia free trade agreement and change from labor negotiators to liberal negotiators. The um, Australia-US free trade agreement, though, it was, it was driven by a deadline because they were concerned that the Republican Party would be destabilized through the election. 
And so we can see how party stability stops negotiations from being uh, concluded, and we can see how instability has an impact. The perception of instability can have an impact on a negotiation at the, de at the end point as well. And then credible deadlines of the five negotiations uh, the U.S.-Australia was the only negotiation that had a credible deadline. And so that's interesting to pay. Deadlines matter. Uh, linkage dynamics. So we find that in the, in the international relations field, there's a lot of literature on linkage dynamics, particularly um, in how you will link trade to security. And so we see that linkage in the Chile-U.S. free trade agreement. Suddenly, the things happening in the, the U.N. Security Council are impacting upon what's going on in a trade negotiation. And so that's called linkage dynamics. And then power matters. Uh, I had four of the five where there's asymmetrical power relations, uh, all of them involving the U.S., but also I think we could say that Australia-Singapore has asymmetrical power relations as well. And so I have, I include that. Can you imagine that Australia would wait for four years with the United States on an issue? Or can you imagine that Singapore or Chile would delay for four years? I think we can say that, that Australia and Korea are pretty close to symmetrical, depending on what. And I think the symmetry contributed to the deadlock. So asymmetry does, uh, it facilitates uh, outcomes, is my theory. And here's my model. No, no. I've got. Um, so these are the micro issues. And what we find what happens in the micro issues, uh, trade focused, so you're negotiating trade deals and then they get shifted at the very end to the politicians, the ministers usually wrap these up. Political decisions are focused on defensible status elements. So the ministers are saying, what can I, what can I stand before my public and defend? That's the critical issue. Construction of settlement packages. So I'll put together this package, you put together that package, we trade on packages or we trade off on issues. This is, the out, this is what occurs across the table when we're finding outcomes. So there's my model. So closure variables, and I only have five. I, if I had 20 cases, I think I'd find additional closure variables. Party stability and instability uh, serves as a closure variable. Linkage dynamics can create deadlines or delays. Uh, asymmetrical power relations minimizes deadlocks, and so those closure variables then create what the minister needs is a landing pad. This is what's described to me in Canberra. A guy kind of explained to me, this is how it works. I, I, I said, can I quote you on that? And he said, yes, of course, but I don't use his name, of course, but a landing pad. So you've got a landing pad, and a helicopter's going to land somewhere. You don't know where that helicopter's going to land, but they're going to land somewhere on the landing pad, somewhere. Landing pad's really big, helicopter's small, going to land somewhere. When the chief negotiator can take that to the trade minister, that's when the minister gets involved. That is where you shift from, from, from trade specialists to political people at that moment. And that's, so that has to appear. And then, of course, um, well, so then you're shifting. And then there's got to be a venue. So it's going to be done by political people. They're busy people. Where are they going to meet? Where are the ministers going to meet? So APEC Summit, um, uh, some other ministerial, WTO ministerial, wherever they meet. They they'll probably take three to four hours, because this is serious stuff usually, and they'll have a side meeting. So you can imagine when Apex holding a ministerial, they just, I haven't asked them this, I'm guessing, they must reserve like, you know, blocks of time for one-on-one for -on -one meetings and maybe even meeting spaces. They'll, they'll have maybe 10 or 15 different rooms where ministers can meet. I, I'm guessing, I should ask them that question. And then of course you need a venue and then you get closure. 
So, closure and complex negotiation. I think I may be one of the few chapters of 20 chapters that actually presents a model, is what I'm pleased to say. And so, I'm gonna leave, I've got one more slide, but I'll leave it. The slide is like, what, what kind of future research questions we could ask? But I've gone on for 40 minutes now. We started five minutes late. And so, I'll leave it at that. And thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.